Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 21. First Kings chapter 21, and let's read the first 16 verses of this chapter. And it came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel, hard by the palace of Ahab king of Samaria. And Ahab spoke unto Naboth, saying, Give me thy vineyard, that I may have it for a garden of herbs, because it is near unto my house. And I will give for thee for it a better vineyard than it, or, if it seem good to thee, I will give thee the worth of it in money. And Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid it me, that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. And Ahab came into his house heavy and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give thee the inheritance of my fathers. And he laid him down upon his bed and turned away his face and would eat no bread. But Jezebel his wife came to him and said unto him, Why is thy spirit so sad that thou eatest no bread? And he said unto her, Because I spake unto Naboth the Jezreelite and said unto him, Give me thy vineyard for money, or else if it please thee, I will give thee another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give thee my vineyard. Then Jezebel his wife said unto him, Dost thou now govern the kingdom of Israel? Arise and eat bread and let thine heart be merry. I will give thee the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent the letters unto the elders and to the nobles that were in his city dwelling with Naboth. And she wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth on high among the people and set two men, sons of Belial, before him to bear wetness against him, saying, Thou didst blaspheme God and the king. And then carry him out and stone him that he may die. And the men of his city, even the elders and the nobles who were the inhabitants in his city, did as Jezebel had sent unto them, and as it was written in the letters which she had sent unto them. They proclaimed a fast and set Naboth on high among the people. And there came in two men, children of Belial, who, and sat before him. And the men of Belial witnessed against him, even against Naboth, in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth did blaspheme God and the king. Then they carried him forth out of the city and stoned him with stones that he died. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth is stoned and is dead. And it came to pass when Jezebel heard that Naboth was stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give thee for money. For Naboth is not alive but dead. And it came to pass when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab rose up to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's pray once more. Our God and Father, we are not worthy of the least of your mercies, and as we just sang, we come to you as a sinful people in need of renewed repentance, renewed forgiveness from you. And we do that this day, and we thank you that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We do not come in our own name. We do not come in our own strength. We come in Christ alone. And 
It's his merits and his blood that we plead this day. Help us as we look into your word this hour that we would learn from it what we should and that it would be profitable unto us, instructive to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the story that we read here is not a fun story. It's not a, it's not a feel-gooder story. We, we, I think if we're being honest, we don't like this story. I don't like this story in a sense. An innocent man is killed. That's not a good story. And we all like the story of Joseph in Egypt. We like the story of the three men in the fiery furnace, the ones miraculously preserved. We like the story of Joshua surrounding the walls of Jericho. And we, you know, we sing about that. The walls came tumbling down. But we don't sing about Naboth, do we? We don't, we don't really talk about it. And maybe one reason for that is that the New Testament writers don't talk about this story either. Not once do you read of the apostles mentioning this. In fact, Naboth's not mentioned outside of the books of the kings, First and Second Kings. And if I can confess here, I've, I've procrastinated on this series because we're at this section. It's, it's hard. This is a hard story. And one of the benefits of this kind of verse-by-verse exposition of Scripture is it forces us to look at passages that, that don't go away. It forces us to get outside of our comfort zones, maybe, outside of those familiar passages of Scripture that we like. And that's good for us. We need that. We need this chapter of First Kings. So by God's grace today, we're going to look at this story of Naboth, these first 16 verses. Now, it's been December since we were in First Kings, and I'm going to forgo a review today of what we previously looked at. I'll just suffice it to say that there was a big battle we looked at and a lot of people died and God was glorified. That's our review. Well, one other thing by way of introduction before we look at verse 1. We are in a series on Elijah the Tishbite, but you'll notice that Elijah doesn't appear anywhere in the text here in the first 16 verses of this chapter. We're not interested in Elijah today. We won't be talking about him. We'll see him next time. But as we go through these 16 verses today, just keep in mind that Elijah is the one who confronts this issue. And humanly speaking, the reason the story is here is because of Elijah's involvement with it. We don't have a detailed account in the Old Testament of every high-handed sin of every Israelite king. But we do have this. And it's because of Elijah the Tishbite. It was in his ministry. So we'll be looking at that next time. But we have the scene here in, in verse 1. that says that it came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel, hard by the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And we see that Ahab asks him for it, this vineyard. And he gives him two different options. He says, I'll give you money if you want, or I'll give you a vineyard better than that. And and Naboth gets to pick here on this. So this man Naboth is a Jezreelian. He's got this vineyard, and it's right next to the palace of King Ahab. Now, Ahab's got two palaces, you've probably noticed. He has his regular one in Samaria. That was the one that was often used. But then Ahab's got this this kind of new palace that he's got up in Jezreel, which is 25 miles or so by my count to the north. Gets him closer to the king of the Zidonians, which is where his in-laws live. And it makes a convenient halfway point. And Ahab craves this vineyard that's next to this palace here in Jezreel. And so he makes this proposition that it seems that he thinks is overly abundantly fair and, and equitable. He, he's not trying to cheat Naboth in his mind here. He's going to let him pick hard silver or he's going to give him a better vineyard. 
And he, and he gives the reason for it. He says, this is a natural fit for me. It's right next to my house. That's his palace that speaks of there. And you can imagine he's got his gilded halls of that palace in Jezreel. And he must be able to walk outside and go to this refreshing oasis. Well, it was a deal that Naboth couldn't refuse. Except we see that he did. Verse 3. Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid it me that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. Now, notice carefully that response there. He didn't just say, no, I won't give you my vineyard. In fact, he invokes the name of Israel's God. He says, the Lord, Yahweh, forbid it me that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. And notice that. He's not calling it his vineyard. He's calling it the inheritance of his fathers. And we're going to see that this specific language that he's using here is very important. Now, that excuse is going to, it's going to turn into an excuse. It's going to get garbled when it goes back to Jezebel, when, when Ahab repeats it. And we'll see that as well. But notice the language here of how Naboth says it to Ahab. We want to understand, what is he talking about here? What is, why this answer and why this language? Well, to do that, let's go back to Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 23. This is, in this chapter is, is about the year of Jubilee, about every seventh year, and then every seventh time seventh year on the 50th year. And it says here in verse 23, The land shall not be sold forever. The land is mine, for ye are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the land of your possessions, ye shall grant a redemption for the land. Now, you'll notice here that the Lord does go on to allow the land to be temporarily sold in duress circumstances to be redeemed at the year of Jubilee. Let's read that, verse 25. If thy brother be waxen poor and hath sold away some of his possession, and if any of his kin come to redeem it, then shall he redeem that which his brother sold. And if the man have none to redeem it and himself be able to redeem it, then let him count the years of the sale thereof and restore the overplus unto the man to whom he sold it. In other words, prorate the amount against the mature date, that he may return unto his possession. But if he be not able to restore it to him, then that which is sold shall remain in the hand of him that hath bought it until the year of Jubilee. And in the Jubilee it shall go out, and he shall return unto his possession. So here's the reason, then, that Naboth's giving Ahab for why he's not taking up him on the deal. God did not intend for the inheritance of each Israelite to permanently change hands from family to family. It stayed to the one it was assigned. And what was the reason for that given in Leviticus? He says, for the land is mine. This isn't their individual sovereign rights here. It's God. And because of that, they're to honor their inheritance. And there's a spiritual picture to this. And, you know, even in situations where the land did need to be sold temporarily, the spirit of the law here clearly is that that is intended to be under certain duress circumstances temporarily, and it would be redeemed back as soon as possible. So, in other words, if Naboth were to just temporarily sell this land to Ahab, well, that would be violating the spirit of the law. It would be violating the letter of the law to permanently sell it to Ahab. And it, it seems clear that Ahab was is wanting this to keep. He's not 
You're not looking at leasing it. Now, one of the commands that the kings of Israel were to obey was that when they became king, they had to write out a copy of the law of God. We'll look at that here in a moment, Lord willing. If Ahab had done that, which I have my doubts, sadly, but if he had done that, he would have handwritten that section of Leviticus. He would be having that as his personal copy of God's law, and he would be familiar with this section here. He hardly could have been ignorant of it. Your jubilee was of important economic importance in, in, in Israel. And so I fear that his sin here is worse than ignorance. At bottom, what we see here is he did not care about the law of God. He didn't care what the word of God said on this matter. It's clear that his thinking here is this is just a secular business proposal. And Naboth's bringing God into discussion here is this unnecessary convenience. He doesn't like this. What is it? What does he respond in verse 4? Ahab came into his house, into his palace, heavy and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give thee the inheritance of my fathers. Notice how the writer of 1 Kings is correctly quoting what Naboth said to Ahab. I will not give thee the inheritance of my fathers. Now, Ahab's response then is he goes into his house heavy and displeased. He becomes sick here. And this sickness is not entirely pretense on Ahab's part. This inability for him to satisfy his lust made him physically sick. You know, we see this in Scripture, not just here. In Second Samuel, there's the story of Amnon, who was, it says, so vexed that he fell sick for his sister Tamar. In other words, Amnon is so frustrated that he falls Sick, it's to the point of making himself sick. That's the language that's being used here. And we have here this close-up picture of the killing power of lust and greed. You know, there's the story of Nabal as well. When he learns what his wife Abigail did, says that his heart turned to stone, and the Lord smote him shortly thereafter. It's the same thing, except in that case it was something that already happened and he couldn't, do anything about it. What does Proverbs 14 say? A sound heart is the life of the flesh, but envy the rottenness of the bones. When you desire something that you should not have and you cannot get it, it will make you physically sick. It will literally rotten your bones. It will make your heart heavy and not a godly sorrow that leads to repentance but a heaviness of heart that leads to rottenness of bones. It will make you resentful and angry. It will destroy you. Well, let's be clear here what Ahab's sin was and was not. His sin was not that he wanted to own a vineyard. The desire in and of itself to own a vineyard is not ungodly. The virtuous woman of Proverbs 31 considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. There's nothing inherently wrong with buying a field if it's lawfully yours to buy. Rather, Ahab's sin here is that he had an inordinate desire for a vineyard that was not his to have. That's what got him into trouble. And isn't this what sin often does to us? There's a desire that in and of itself is good, and sin twists it into something that's evil. What we see here in Ahab is textbook covetousness. It's a textbook breach of the Tenth Commandment. 
In Exodus 20, verse 17, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. There's nothing wrong with a house. There's nothing wrong with wanting to buy a house in and of itself. But if it's your neighbor's house and it's not yours to have, that's covetousness. Sin takes something good and twists it. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Marriage is a God-given gift. But you're not to covet a woman that is not yours to have. Your neighbor's wife, that's covetousness. Nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything, anything that is thy neighbor's. Well, that would include vineyards. It was not Ahab's to have. He knew better. And because of the day and age in which we live, I say this. God did not give his commands because he wanted to oppress us. That's a common thought nowadays, isn't it? He gave these commandments for our good. When you covet, you're desiring something that's your neighbor's. When you do that, you're hurting yourself. Ahab's covetousness hurt him. He goes heavy and displeased. His heart is heavy. You know, if you'd been wearing a Garmin watch, you would have told me you need to take a breathing relaxation test. <laughs> his heart rate's up. His stress levels are high. Christian, do not harbor the early stages of this kind of covetousness in your life. How easily do we harbor infant stages of covetousness? But Take a hard look at Ahab here and know that what happens to him will be your portion if you do not kill your covetousness. If this chapter of 1 Kings doesn't make us want to guard our hearts against covetousness, I, I don't know what would. Well, the end of verse 4 there, it says that he laid him down upon his bed and turned away his face and would eat no bread. If you wanted to, you could render this turning away his face in the vernacular as pouting. He, he was refusing to be comforted here. And he's making this big scene. And it's true that he made himself physically sick over this, but he's also putting on an act here. You know, in the same way that, that Amnon was putting on a bit of an act. There was some truth and some fiction to his sickness. Ahab's got an act that he's got going on here. And we see here that the act paid off. He, he got what he was waiting for, I think. Verse 5, Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said unto him, Why is thy spirit so sad that thou eatest no bread? Well, here comes Jezebel, and you can just hear it. Honey, what's the matter? You know, Ahab, he gets Jezzy's attention here, like he knew it would. Ahab isn't going to get better here until he gets his way. But he also doesn't have the guts to do what he really wants to do here. And so for that, he's going to need his helper, perfectly suited to him, for evil. Now, we want to notice very carefully how he answers that question in verse 6. But he said unto her, and he said unto her, Because I spake unto Naboth the Jezreelite, and said unto him, Give me thy vineyard for money, or else if it please thee, I will give thee another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give thee my vineyard. Notice that. I, I will not give thee my vineyard. He's not acknowledging to his wife here the actual reason that Naboth gave. And this is, this is so often the case, isn't it? You know, when, when, when Ahab gets back from Mount Carmel and he tells Jezebel all that Elijah had done on Mount Carmel, it had nothing to do with Elijah. It was Elijah's God, but it didn't, he didn't tell Jezebel about what Elijah's God did on Mount Carmel. 
And the same thing happens here. Everything's always in the context of a godless presupposition. He will not give me his vineyard. It was ultimately Yahweh, not Naboth, who forbade that transaction. Leviticus makes that abundantly clear. And notice that Ahab doesn't use the terminology that Naboth used either. He doesn't call this vineyard the inheritance of Naboth's fathers. That would have been an inconvenient phrasing there. Instead, he's giving the impression that Naboth is just being obstinate and rebellious. Ahab's demonstrating here the playbook of all tyrannical rulers. When godly men, when godly Naboths give their scriptural bases for their God-given rights, what do you see wicked rulers do? They say, oh, you just don't want to give me your vineyards, do you? You're just being stubborn. Ahab had no scruples about editing Naboth's message here. And when Ahab's accusing Naboth of, of not complying, that's really saying more about Ahab than it's saying about Naboth. In other words, in our text here, who's being obstinate? Who's being rebellious? It's Ahab. He's the one that's being truly rebellious. This high-handed dismissal of God's law from Leviticus makes him the guilty one, not Naboth. Naboth was right to refuse Ahab's request. It would have been sin for him to comply. A.W. Pink says this, quote, While rendering to Caesar the things which Caesar may justly require, under no circumstances must we fail to render unto God those things which he demands of us. And if we should be bidden to rob God, our duty is plain and clear. The inferior law must yield to the higher. Loyalty to God takes precedent over all other considerations. End quote. Verse 7, And Jezebel his wife said unto him, Dost thou now govern the kingdom of Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let thine heart be merry. I will give thee the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Let me paraphrase what Jezebel is saying here. You're the government, and you can do what you want. Jezebel is not used to this concept of limited government. But this idea of limited government comes from the God of Israel. It's a biblical thing. And we're being told by woke Christianity, oh, that's an American modernistic constitution-only idea and all this. No, no, no. It's a biblical thing. We got this from this book. We'll look at a scripture verse in a minute here, but I'll start in summary from 1 Samuel chapter 10 when they're installing King Saul as the first king of Israel. It says that Samuel told the people the manner of the kingdom. He told the people the manner of the kingdom. It wasn't up to Saul to just invent how he wanted to kingdom things. Samuel told the people the manner of the kingdom and wrote it in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Verse 14, Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me, thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee. So notice that, the idea of a king originating from the people. That's not an American concept. 
Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. But he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord hath said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. And it shall be when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priests of the Levites. That's what Ahab should have done. Again, I have my doubts if he did that. He should have been under discipline. He should never have even, he should have been cut off from his people. That also is in the law. You go to turn aside the false gods, you're cut off. Verse 19, it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life. It's not just a once and done thing. You don't just copy it on inaugural week and then get, let it gather dust on the shelf. He's supposed to read this thing all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them. And notice this, that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren, and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. So what is this saying here? The king's not above the law here. The king is in subjection to the same law as his brethren. If it would be wrong for one of his brethren to just grab a vineyard, it's wrong for the king to just grab a vineyard. It says that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren. The king is not above law. Well, Jezebel wasn't used to any of this. As the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, we saw that in chapter 16, she's got a background where the king is dictator. You know, governments that don't get their playbook from Scripture invariably end up with a dictatorship or some variation on a theme of dictatorness. And that was Jezebel's background. You know, in, in the land of the Zidonians, if you wanted a piece of property and you were king, you just took it. There's no permission necessary. The king was law. So Jezebel doesn't like this biblical idea of limited government. So what does she tell her husband? She says, relax, eat, be happy. I'll give you the vineyard of Naboth. Now, was that hers to give? No. Jezebel is saying, look, he'll, he'll own nothing and you'll be happy. So, well, when Ahab heard this, he knows that whatever Jezebel's up to, she's, she's promising that she's going to give him the vineyard. He knows that whatever she's up to, it's not good. It's not going to obey by the law of God. And Ahab doesn't try to stop her. I think he's actually relieved that his wife's going to do the dirty work. He doesn't try to stop her. And he's going to be culpable as a result for everything that happens next, as we're going to see. Now, we see in verse 8 that Jezebel wrote scrolls planning the murder of Naboth. Verse 8, she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent the letters unto the elders and to the nobles that were in his city dwelling with Naboth. So in other words, you have the elders and you have the nobles of Jezreel who receive this letter, this scroll. And, and what is it contained in it? Verse 9, she wrote in the letter saying, Proclaim a fast. And set Naboth on high among the people. And set two men, sons of Belial, before him. 
to bear witness against him, saying, Thou didst blaspheme God and the king, and then carry him out and stone him that he may die. This phrase, sons of Belial here, they're not descendants of a specific person. This isn't some bad family that lives in a bad part of town that's just known for doing your dirty work. This is an idiom in Hebrew, like we see the sons of thunder, or we see a son of death. If you are the son of something, that means that you embody that. When Jesus tells the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil. They are, they're sons of the devil. It's the same concept here. So this sons of Belial here, this is people that are worthless, people that are vile, people who have no scruples about disobeying God. Find two men like that and set them before Naboth to bear witness against him and accuse him of blaspheming God and the king. Now, it would have been one thing if Jezebel had ordered a couple of villains, a couple of sons of Belial, to just waylay Naboth on his way to the drugstore. Maybe a, a drone strike that unexpectedly takes him out without warning or pretense. Something that's clearly a malicious. Maybe a random stabbing on the street. Something like that. That'd be one thing if she did that. But what makes this passage so sickening to us this afternoon is that she weaponized the Department of Justice to make this murder look legitimate in the eyes of the state. In other words, she wants Naboth arrested and prosecuted in such a way that if you dared question anything about his trial, you would be accused of spreading misinformation. In other words, she wants to lie in broad daylight with all the trappings of justice. So we're going to notice the great irony here, the flagrant high-handed dismissal of the law of God, clearly from Leviticus 25, but then this fastidious attention to detail when it comes to this part of it. Look at this. Proclaim a fast. Oh, so she does know something about how this works in Israel. She hates the concepts of limited government. She hates the concepts of the God of Israel. But she knows how to play the game. She knows how to twist it. Proclaim a fast. Order a holy convocation. A solemn assembly. What is this speaking of? This is always in the context of a great sin has happened. And we're not sure who did it. But we have to get together and we have to take some time in prayer and fasting to find out who's the guilty one. Who are the guilty people? And then, during this process, you're going to have these two men, which is the bare minimum that she happens to know about as the requirement for witness-bearing, and accuse him of this death-deserving sin of blaspheming God and the king. So Jezebel is weaponizing the God of Israel's own law against his very people. She knew the law. She knew that there were two witnesses required for establishing this accusation. But here she's pretending, out of pretense, to care deeply about this part of the law while ignoring what we saw in Deuteronomy 17. You know, in John chapter 8, Jesus said, It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. This is evident from Deuteronomy 19, 15. I'll just read it. It says, One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin, and any sin that he sinneth, at the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. Well, brothers and sisters, Jezebel is living proof here in, in this scripture that a good law can and will be derailed if the people are not a moral and religious people. It's, it's wholly inadequate for the government of any other, as John Adams said. She's following everything to the letter. We got our two witnesses. And Jesus affirmed that, as we saw. John 8. 
When you see a wicked ruler like Jezebel suddenly caring deeply about the law, watch out. She's probably up to no good. Well, notice one more thing here in this writing of the scrolls here that Jezebel makes. She commands that Naboth be charged with double blasphemy against both God and the king. And if some of those I've read after are right, this religious breach, the blaspheme against God, allows for them to kill Naboth. And then the civil breach, blaspheming the king, allows the property confiscation. Oh, he's a national security threat. He blasphemed the king. We can scrape his properties. So she's got all the bases covered here. Jezebel has the wit and the venom of the old serpent. Well, verse 11, the men of his city, even the elders and the nobles who were the inhabitants in his city, did as Jezebel had sent unto them. And as it was written in the letters which she had sent unto them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth on high among the people. So there's the convocation. There's the fasting. And, oh, I think we found our man. It's Naboth. But now they need to know, okay, we've picked this man, but how can we know this is really him or not? And what has he done? And then, oh, here come these witnesses, the two men, verse 13, children of Belial, and sat before him. And the men of Belial witnessed against him, even against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth did blaspheme God and the king. And they carried him out of the city and stoned him with stones that he died. Well, this would have been an interesting trial to watch in this kangaroo court. Did Naboth protest his innocence? Was there back and forth? Did he see that the table was so set that it was pointless trying to fight it? And was there anybody at this trial who believed these lies? I have to believe that Naboth, right next to the palace, had an established character. This would have been outside the pale of what was normal for him. And I have to believe these two children of Belial, you can, you can sometimes tell just by the looks on people's faces whether they mean what they're saying or not. Was their character not established as sons of Belial? Was there anyone here who actually thought that any of this was true? Well, we're not there and we're not given details. And Regardless, they take him outside of the city and stone him with stones, a slow and painful way to die. It's a merciful way to die if you are being stoned correctly as just judgment upon yourself. It's a reminder of the pain that you're going to be summoned into in eternity. It's a last chance to repent. But for an innocent man, it was entirely unnecessary and evil. And I have to say this, it apparently wasn't just Naboth who was stoned to death. It was descendants as well. I want us to look at this in Second Kings chapter 9. Second Kings chapter 9. The context here is the judgment of the house of Ahab. We'll start reading in verse 25. Then said Jehu to Bidkar, his captain, take up and cast him in the portion of the field of Naboth, the Jezreelite. This is Jehoram that they're going to throw him into the field of Naboth, the Jezreelite. For remember how that when I and thou rode together after Ahab, his father, the Lord laid his bur- this burden upon him. Surely I have seen yesterday 
The blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, saith the Lord, and I will requite thee in this plat, in this piece of ground, the same piece of ground, saith the Lord. Now therefore take and cast him into the plat of ground according to the word of the Lord. As best as we can tell here, what this is revealing to us is this. Jehu and Bidkar, his captain, the day after this thing that we read of in in 1 Kings 21, the day after the murder of Naboth, they're riding after, they're following Ahab into the field of Naboth. It's possible, if this is the same event as the event that we'll read next time in God's kindness when when Elijah confronts Ahab, Ahab's coming in with this procession of people. He's got, it's a party. And they witness the judgment that is proclaimed upon Ahab and on all those who participated in this. Surely I have seen yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons. The death of the sons was necessary to ensure that there would be no heirs to Naboth's vineyard. It's not just enough to take out Naboth. You have to wipe out the whole clan, the whole family. The whole family of Naboth killed in one day over a vineyard. And everyone who participated knowingly in this was guilty of murder. You know, these, these nobles and these elders who received the scroll and who followed everything out, who picked their two sons of Belial, all of them are culpable. You know, this, this excuse of, well, I was just following orders. It's not going to fly on the judgment day for these elders and these nobles. Compliance with tyrants and their wicked schemes is treason against God, and he will requite it. I mean, put yourself in the shoes of these nobles. You're, you're given orders to kill someone in cold blood through accusation. And you might well know that compliance or f- failure to comply, well, if they're willing to do that to Naboth, that could happen to you too. And they feared man more than they feared God. And they complied with tyrants. And he will requite the blood at their hands. Verse 15, And it came to pass when Jezebel heard that Naboth was stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give thee for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And it came to pass when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Well, as we saw in Second Kings, this may have been the next day when that happened. But he gets there. He gets down to his vineyard. He can arise and take possession of this thing that he's made himself sick over. But this enjoyment of this vineyard would be all too short-lived, as we'll see next time. Well, this is the last that we hear of Naboth. His biography starts in verse 1 of 1 Kings 21, and it ends in verse 13, when they stone him with stones that he dies. He died at the hands of wicked men for his faithfulness, along with his family. And what shall we say to these things? Help, Lord, for the godly man ceaseth, for the faithful fail from among the children of men. In another place, deliver me not over to the will of mine enemies, for false witnesses are risen up against me, and such as breathe out cruelty. I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. 
Another place, surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, ye bloody men, for they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. Well, accusing someone of blaspheming God and the king, that's taking God's name in vain. His enemies, thine enemies, O God, take thy name in vain, says the psalmist. How do we make sense of these things in, in the context and in conjunction of this story of Naboth? It seems like everything went wrong in his case. It seems like none of these psalms work. And to think this through, I want us to turn to one of the clearest psalms about God's deliverance of his people from adversity. Turn with me to Psalm 34. Let's start in verse... 15, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. Well, it it seems like everything's backwards here, doesn't it? Naboth is the one who's cut off the remembrance from the earth. He and his children, there will be no more of Naboth's household. The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth? And delivereth them out of all their troubles? Did the Lord hear Naboth? The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. Did the Lord deliver Naboth out of them all? He keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. Naboth was stoned to death. Were bones broken? You betcha bones were broken. That's how you die. Evil shall slay the wicked, and they that hate the righteous shall be desolate. The Lord redeemeth the soul of his servants, and none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. How do we, how do we make sense of this? Well, I think you know the answer, but we want to go through this. We, we considered the psalm on a Lord's Day afternoon recently, and that verse about Keeping all his bones, not one of them is broken. That's quoted in John's gospel, specifically. As a, this psalm being a, a prophesying of Christ. When you read these psalms, David's certainly intending them in a temporal way, but you can't apply their ultimate fulfillment as temporal only. All of these things apply to Jesus Christ. And he was crucified. Was he delivered from the afflictions? Did the Lord deliver him out of all, out of them all? What happened to Naboth when he died? He was carried by angels into Abraham's bosom. That terminology that that David talks about, about going down into the pit, he says, Lord, save me that I do not go down into the pit. What's he talking about? He's talking about, to use the phrase that Jesus used, he went into the heart of the earth to Sheol, Abraham's bosom, and was comforted in the presence of the patriarchs. And he didn't stay in Sheol. He ascended into the third heaven, into paradise, with all the triumphant Old Testament saints at the time of Christ's death. 
The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth and delivereth them out of all their troubles. Did this hold true for Naboth? It did. It did. And oftentimes in the book of Psalms and elsewhere, Scripture talks about eternal deliverance in temporal terms. As we would read it and and think of it. So while our hearts ache for the injustice that occurred here in 1 Kings, at the end of the day, who won? Who, Who was conqueror? Naboth was. Now, in our earthly thinking, we all hope this doesn't happen to us. We all hope that some tyrannical ruler doesn't tell us to sin against God with a sword in his hand, which is essentially what we have here. But it might happen to us. We live in a day in which judgment does not get carried out. Outrageous injustices against God's people happening in our land on a regular basis. People in jail and in prison for no reason except for righteousness' sake. And these injustices are not made right in the lifetime of God's people, often. Well, our faith in God's government of this earth is put to the test when that happens. That's what makes this chapter so difficult, because when you're in Naboth's shoes, you're forced to walk by faith and not by sight. As you're being summoned to walk out of the city to your death, is God true to his promise to deliver his people from their afflictions? Does Psalm 34 hold true? Well, it did for Christ as he walked out to Golgotha. If our faith in God's governing of this earth is what it should be, the injustices that occur in this life should not unsettle us beyond measure. You know, we can, we can work ourselves into fits if we dwell on the evil and the injustice going on in our nation right now. But remember this, the just judge of the earth will do right. He does not forget anything. All will be restored and made right. I think it's interesting there in Second Kings, in that scene there, that it's the plot of ground is called the plot of Naboth. It's not, that's, it's, God still recognizes that as, that's Naboth's property. You know, Naboth lost his vineyard for a little while, but through Christ, he will inherit the earth. Naboth is an example for us in this. And Naboth is a type of our supreme example, Jesus Christ. You might have been thinking about that as we were talking about the trial and all of the things that went on. And A.W. Pink makes a list of all the parallels between Naboth and Christ. And I'll give, I'll give some of it here. Naboth possessed a vineyard. Christ did too. Remember the parable in Matthew 21. The parable of the vineyard. And in both cases, the vineyard was desired by adversaries. Both Naboth and Christ were tempted to disobey and leave off their inheritance. That's Christ in Matthew 4 and the temptation of the wilderness. Leave off your inheritance. Each refused the voice of the tempter. Each was falsely accused of blaspheming God. Each was taken outside the gates of the city and publicly executed. And I add this to the list. Each lost something seemingly for a season, but gained something far greater in return. And so Naboth is a shadow, a foreshadowing, a type of Christ, and, and we are to be called, called to be like Christ. We are to take up our cross and follow him. And what does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount about our treasure not being on earth where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break in and steal? Well, a thief broke in and stole from Naboth, didn't he? Under color of justice, 
That's exactly what happened. So where is our treasure? You know, it reveals us where our treasure is when we read something like this, isn't it? You know, if, if, if all of your hope is dashed when an evil ruler takes away your vineyard, your treasure's on earth. Now, that doesn't mean that it's wrong for you to rebuke them for that or to consider it a light thing. It's not. They'll answer to God for that. It's a grievous sin. It should be resisted. But if they take your vineyard from you, is that where your treasure is? Is, is, is our hope in our vineyards or is it in the God of Israel? Is it in the things of this earth or is it in the Christ that Naboth is pointing us to? Let us consider faithfulness to God our chief aim in life. That's what Naboth did here. Faithfulness to God was his chief aim. It wasn't self-preservation. What does Paul say? Count everything as loss for him. And even in the face of martyrdom, can you say with the psalmist, I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right, and that thou in faithfulness hast afflicted me. And in another place he says, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and the right of the poor. Surely the righteous shall give thanks unto thy name. The upright shall dwell in thy presence.